All right. Now, to the Word of God. As I was praying through what to bring, it just seems there's a pattern where I bring you a whole book of the Bible. You might remember, I'm going to take you back a little bit, not too long. I just want to create a bit of context for you. Uh, as I mentioned, I'll be... Excellent. This looks so... It's like a motorbike or, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. So, yeah. So, if we can go to the next slide... And we'll start off there. So what I want to do is just look at what we're going to look at for Ephesians here. So as you can see, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. I want to give you some context. Not too much, but I have to give you some. So in other words, how does Paul know the Ephesian church, basically? And why would a letter be written to them? Now, there's some conjecture around Ephesians, as in, did Paul just write it specifically to the Ephesians? And the reason for that is the early text, the earliest ones we have, there are, there are some that don't have to the Ephesians. And the reason why people think that is they think it could have been a circular letter. So in other words, it may have been passed on to multiple congregations. However, I'm in the camp that says it was written to the Ephesians because I think that's what the early church believed. Okay? So that's where I'm coming from before I start. I believe to the Ephesians means exactly to the Ephesians. But what's important is what's the message of Ephesians. And I can't do it all in one sermon. It's impossible. But if you think of Ephesians in two main parts, six chapters, the first three are basically doctrine. And the next three are kind of, well, you know the doctrine now, how do you live? And then it finishes with that very famous, the armour of God, you know, put on the armour of God, basically. So what I want to start with first is as we play a blessing on God's word, let's look at what Paul says at the beginning on almost all his letters, but he always starts with grace, peace, blessing type of, um, you know, to, to impel the church there to understand the grace of God. So Grace to you and peace from, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, may grace and peace be with each of you. With each of you from the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God, that grace and peace is, is available in our God. Amen? Amen? Grace and peace. Let's pray a blessing on the Word as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we have today in our hands, what we have in our hearts, and what we have in our head, which is the Word of God. We thank you, Lord. We ask your Spirit would make it come alive this morning, that we might know you better might understand your message of salvation and how we might give you glory in our lives because we ask this in the only name in which we call and that's the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to look at the context of the letter. What are the main messages? What are the key themes? And I want to bring it back to what Wayne's been talking about and say, well, how does that fit in with the two greatest commandments of what Jesus was talking about? And that is to love God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength, everything in you. Love From everything, love God and then loving your neighbour as yourself. Because as we know, without that, it's a pointless exercise if we don't have love. So we can do all these things that Ephesians may give us uh, you know, instruction to do or give us encouragement to do, but if we don't have love, then we have nothing, literally. So everything is brought back to the, the lavishness of God's love. So let's go back to where I preached before. So we won't go back and go through everything, but I need to give you a bit of context about where Ephesians is and where it sits in Paul's ministry and why he wrote it. So let's go to the next slide. And this is where I love the pointer thing. So let's just get that out of the way, shall we? There we go. I love it already. Okay. So we looked at here. You can see the colours. There's a little uh, key down the bottom. You can get these online. They're very easy to find. And it's really good to have a look at. There's some really good sites just for lay people to look at what actually the context is. So... Paul's first two missionary journeys we're looking at here. He starts with a small one, like most things, you go on a small trip, and then you go on your bigger one. But Paul had a real vision. So he starts from Antioch on his first trip. He goes through here, you can see he actually goes through Cyprus up here, and then he comes back, makes his way back to Antioch. So you can see the blue and the orange lines. Now he goes through Galatia. 
So he comes back to Antioch, and when he gets back to Antioch, you remember he found that the church was basically doing the opposite of what he instructed them to do. And this is the freedom in Christ, that we have freedom in Christ, we don't need to go back to all the Jewish laws. Like Wayne said, we had 613 regulations, and they wanted to go back to that, instead of the law of love and the law of freedom, which is in the gospel. It's not licentiousness, so he wasn't saying do what you want, because it's very much not like that. He instructs very much about purity and things like that, but we're not bound by law, thankfully. So all his letters are found with thankfulness because we're not bound by that. He thanks God that we're not bound by the law. He, he, I think he wrote Galatians at this time before the Council of Jerusalem. So that happened about, you know, we're talking about 48 AD, AD 48 or something like that. And the reason I think that is because I think he would have mentioned it in the book of Galatians. Most evangelical scholars think Galatians was the first New Testament book written by Paul. Okay? So that's his first trip. The second trip is much more bold because as you can see by the purple lines, he goes back through Galatia, going through his old hometown of Tarsus, makes his way up to Dardanelles. You know that from the Gallipoli story I told you before. Makes his way right up to Macedonia, then makes his way all the way down to Corinth and then starts his journey home. But on his second missionary trip in Corinth, he spends about 18 months there, uh, which is down here. He writes the book of First and Second Thessalonians. And there he's commending the church because they stayed firm in their beliefs, they stuck to the game, and they did what he told them to do. But he encouraged them to not be put off course, which is a great message for all of us. Do what you know is right. Okay, Do what the Bible tells you, basically. Do what I've instructed you, in this case. And then he happens to stop in Ephesus, here, and then makes his way back down here, eventually back up through land to Antioch. So that trip probably took him something like about three years, right? So those are his first two trips. So the message of Galatians and Thessalonians was instruction, encouragement, and to to the churches that he'd already been in, he wanted to make sure they stayed on course with what he taught them, okay? And what did he teach them will be the question we ask today, and what did he teach the Ephesians as well? So we might just have a quick look at the third slide as well. So we put that up. Okay, now this tells us, and and as they came to Ephesus and he left them there, But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Okay, second missionary journey. And when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and he went down to Antioch. And then we go to the next slide. Okay, now we pick up his third missionary journey. So he's happened to pass through Ephesus, but he can't stay long. Do you get the picture? He goes to his third missionary journey, which happens not... He virtually gets back and he virtually goes again. So he heads back out again. And this trip is very similar to the second missionary trip. It's a bigger trip, but it's basically very similar. So you can see here he leaves again from Antioch. He goes again through Galatia. So probably visited the churches in Galatia as well, as he did, as you can see. He makes his way through Asia... And then he comes here to Ephesus, where he spends nearly two years. So he spends two. So he knows the Ephesians well. He knows what they're up to. He knows what they understand. And then he goes right up again to Macedonia. He comes all back around. You can see he goes to Corinth, and eventually he comes back here to Miletus here. And there's a little something I want to show you there. But he comes back. So he spends basically three to five years on that missionary journey. So he spent a long time travelling. All of this for the proclamation of the gospel, which is essentially what we should be doing. We should be proclaiming the gospel. We're not all Paul's, probably. But I want to encourage you that it's each one of our jobs to proclaim the gospel wherever we go. And to stick to the Bible would be handy as well. 
Okay, so we stick to what the Bible says. Okay, so third trip. We'll go to the next slide and we'll pick up some scriptures which are actually really important here. Okay, make sure I've got my glasses on. And make sure I'm matching it. Uh, there we go, just over the page. Now from Miletus, he, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, and then we pick up at 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Can we just slide back to that last slide, if we can, of the map? Now, this is happening here in Miletus. He's on his way home, but he calls the elders of Ephesus to come and meet him. And he, he, there's a passage here you can read in Ephesians uh, where he basically talks about, uh, he wants to just correct them again. And then at the end, they didn't want him to go because the reason for that is Paul knows that when he goes back, it won't be long before he's put in prison and he'll go for his own ultimate death. So he knows that time's coming, which is why you wonder here why Paul prayed on his knees. Do you understand the significance of praying on your knees in those days? Jews always prayed standing up. Okay, Jews always prayed standing up. The only time they got to their knees was when it was really important or, or was something from the heart. It was unusual. And the Pharisees weren't one to humiliate themselves generally. So praying on your knees means that this means something. It was that he had such a close relationship to them and it was built on the gospel. And the fact that he could send for elders and they would come means that they were keen to know more about the word of God, which is encouraging. Which is probably why, in my opinion, he probably wrote Ephesians, that he's just building on from this. But Ephesians is some years later. Okay, we'll jump forward a little bit if we can. So, and to the next slide, Paul's journey to Rome. Okay, this is the one, I think, am I right there? Yes, this one here. Okay, this is what you call a trip at his majesty's expense. Okay, so Paul's, Paul's in um, Caesarea and Jerusalem. He spends at least probably about two years in Caesarea in prison, or it, whether it's house arrest or whatever it might be, because you remember he talks to Agrippa and Festus and all that sort of stuff, and the Jews are all sort of very angry that he's actually preaching the gospel. And it gets too much, and they start punishing him, and then Paul says, well, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't just chuck me in jail and, and leave me without a trial. So I appeal to Caesar. So it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy or a, you know, Paul is controlling nearly the actions. And he's saying, if you're going to trial me, send me to Rome. And this is his trip. So this is kind of his trip. So he's, he hasn't written Ephesians yet, in my opinion. Some people think he could have written it when he's in Caesarea, but I don't think so. He goes all the way, as you can see. And you know this very famous one when he gets to, uh, where am I, Malta? And he shipwrecked a Malta. He, you know, he just, it's, not the, it's not a Kentucky tour. Okay, he gets shipwrecked, spends three months in Malta, gets bitten by a snake where he's miraculously healed. And, and it's the most amazing adventure. It, it seems like Paul was running the show even though he was the prisoner. You know, he's telling him this is going to crash and they're not sort of listening. And they're all sort of quite superstitious. So if you follow that all through Acts, you'll see that, that Paul's completely in control because God is forming a sense of peace in him. You can get that sense when you read the letters. Why is he forming a sense of peace in him? He's fought a sense of peace in Paul to cut to the chase because he knows that God has lavished his love on him and saved him. That once he was alienated from God and he's made right with God. So he knows this deep down. And this is what he wants the Ephesians to know, that this deepness of God. And I'd ask you this morning, do you feel that same reassurance in yourself? Because if you're not resolved on that this morning, could I encourage you to be resolved that God not only loves you, but he wants a relationship with you no matter if you've been a Christian for 45 years or you're not a Christian today, God 
wants us to be reconciled to him. And from that, we have the peace that surpasses all understanding. You, don't, you cannot logically work out why you're at peace. There is no way to work out how this man is possibly at peace. You know, there is no way he can be shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, beaten, lowered out by baskets, chained to a pole probably in Rome for numbers of years, whipped, disowned by your own people, basically, and be at peace. He's at peace. Why is that? And the same can happen for you and me. Right? It's not Paul who creates the peace. It's the Holy Spirit who creates that in him. And we have the privilege of reading this. So could I encourage you, if nothing else, this morning, could you please read Ephesians? Now, I'll try to lean that there. Jared, I hope I don't ruin your drum set. Good. It stays. Good. <laughs> okay. Let's come back, if I can have the next slide. Is it Ephesians 6, I think, isn't it? I'm having a real trouble because my eyes are going, right? Like, I can't... I can see you guys, and I don't think I need quite glasses, but you're a little bit... Not 100%. When I put these on, I can read this, but I can't sort of read... It's really bad. <laughs> anyone having that same sort of grief over losing their eyesight yeah it's bad and all those years I just you know blase about my eyesight never again never again you know probably I won't promise something I can't keep okay so let's jump to Ephesians and let's find out where Paul probably is when he writes a letter so we're going to the last chapter of Ephesians right near the end to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And I think I've highlighted that, haven't I? That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So in other words, we know that he's in chains. He's in Rome, probably 60 AD. He's either in house arrest, it may be a little bit further on when he wrote it. He may actually be chained to a pole probably because the, the imprisonment got worse. And then we don't know much at the end of Acts. You sort of come to the end, you're sort of wondering, we know he's in house arrest, but the way that they executed people was not that they take you from the house and execute you. You go into dungeons and that sort of stuff. So if you look at the church hist- early church history and tradition, there's no doubt that Paul was uh, you know, basically severely imprisoned at some point. Okay? So, and yet he writes this, and he writes books like Colossians would be an example, or Philemon. He writes these amazing books of grace and love despite his circumstance. And that just, it has to be of God. There can be no way around. Now, we're going to put a little pause on that. I've taken you back to AD 60. I want to take you to the 1960s. So I'm going to take you to 1960, not AD 60. And I want to show you, uh, well, well, let me ask you a question first. Put that one back. We'll go back one. That's it. I don't want to give them too much ahead of time. I'm nearly there. They'll get excited if I show them a picture. Okay. What I want to say is, who remembers the 60s here? The 1960s. Well, you know what they say. If you can remember the 60s, you... If you can remember the 60s, you weren't there. Who's, yeah, you weren't there. But it was, the reason was it was a time of tumultuous change, pushing the envelope, we would say. A time probably like no other in modern history where there was change, there was, polit- there was a political and social. But you can remember... Perhaps you remember things like the rise of the civil rights movement. That can be in the 60s. Or you might remember even in Australia when we had a referendum for the recognition of Aboriginal people. Okay, things were starting to change, often for the good in some ways. But we had JFK assassinated. Can anyone remember that date that happened? Okay. My dad went to Vietnam. Okay, I'm not sure if anybody else went to Vietnam or was involved. Not good. Okay, but this was, this was common. We had, we had a lot of 
you know, these sort of Cold War type moments. I mean, we found we had the USA and the USSR basically, but we had communism versus sort of democracy or capitalism. However, we had these sort of two camps, hence the Cold War. We had technological developments. The year I was born, man's on the moon. Pretty impressive things happened as well. But this was really the 60s. It was, it was a time of this great social upheaval and tension. And this is the picture I want. Can anyone remember this? We'll go to the next slide. There we go. What do you think this is? Give me a shout, hand up and shout out. Berlin Wall. Berlin Wall, correct. What's sad about this is here's the wall, or here's the wall being constructed, and behind there's a church. You know, imagine this church community with a wall down here. And this half can go, or two-thirds can go, and this half separate. I mean, and we're a church community. But that literally happened to families. So you would understand that the Berlin Wall uh, happened on the 13th of August Sunday, just after midnight, 13th of August 1961. Construction began on a wall that was very simple in Russian style, even though built by the East Germans. In Russian style, really plain, really cheap, really nasty. What they did first is the wall took a little bit of time, as you can see, because it had to be constructed. So they had 43 kilometres of brick wall and about 156 kilometres of a border. Basically, they isolated West Berlin and made it landlocked from the rest of, um, obviously, East Germany in that case, but obviously it's, it's linked to West Germany in particular, was broken. So literally overnight, in the space of 24 hours, the communists had cleared like a, a no-man's land type thing with barbed wire and so forth to demarcate that border and had guards already posted around there. And from that, within 24 hours, all connection between east and west was lost and a, an effective border making two cities or two countries separated by this wall being the most tangible evidence of that. Anyone seen the Berlin Wall themselves? Yep, few people. Not much. It's very, it's very plain, very boring. But what it did was catastrophic. Absolutely catastrophic for those people. Literally families. And, and knowing quite a few German people, I've met people who are literally separated from loved ones, from the closest family, a bit like South Korea and North Korea perhaps type of thing. So they called it Barbed Wire Sunday because that Sunday, all they could see when they woke up basically was barbed wire where there was obviously just city streets and so forth. 156 kilometres of barrier. Uh, we had this no man land and the terrifying part of no man's land, people were literally shot in those spaces. If you, if you ventured into that space, you were shot. The border gates were created. You can remember the famous checkpoint Charlie. There were lots of other uh, checkpoints, but checkpoint Charlie being the most famous. And Germans could only get a 24-hour visa to go from one side to the other. People who are actually German in their own country literally got separated that way. Families were separated, husbands, wives, children's parents. It was severe and it was unmerciful. And this is uh, particularly painful for church communities. As I mentioned, you were suddenly not able to go to the church perhaps where you were, were worshipping. You, you actually had to be somewhere else, which is something which was terrible. So the Berlin Wall separated Germans for 38 years. And then something remarkable happened on the 9th of November, something really remarkable. 9th of November, 1989, what happened? It was my birthday. <laughs> I was 20. Good guess. Yet the Berlin Wall came down on my birthday when I was 20 years old. So it's easy for me to remember. The Berlin Wall came down. We'll just go to the next slide there. So you can see, I'll just show you. We have the Berlin Wall. You can see this is the demarcation. This was what existed. And then the next one. And what we saw here in the Berlin Wall was quite remarkable by modern standards. We saw a bloodless revolution. 
a bloodless revolution. It just came from something. It blindsided the people. The Berlin Wall fell. We didn't really fall. What was true, it was pushed over from east and west, which is an impossibility, isn't it? It has to go one way or the other. But obviously, both sides pushed it over. And you can see the soldiers from the east and the citizens from the west on that side. They pushed it over. This bloodless coup started actually in a church called St. Nicholas's Lutheran Church. Big plug for the Lutherans here, by the way. Any recovering Lutherans like me? No. Big plug for the Lutherans. Started with a, started with a prayer in the church. That prayer built to social action. That, that built to a, a, like an idea more than anything, and that's how the wall eventually came down. But it started from there. The wall came literally come, tumbling down, not like, the, like Jericho, perhaps, but in its own way quite remarkable. And one year later, from 989, Germany was reunified. The two became one, and this was done peacefully. The Ber- Berlin Wall represents what I'm trying to do is give you a, a, a metaphor, if you like, a physical idea to understand the idea of estrangement, of being separated. And there will be people here today, including myself, who've had this experience in our own lives, where we are separated from someone or something we love. Um, Some of it can be, at times, things that perhaps we shouldn't love or put our things on to. It could be things like addictions, let's say. But generally speaking, the things that we love, we don't want to be separated from. It doesn't seem natural. It'd be like taking, you know, a child away from a parent or, you know, a brother from a sister or a really good friend from another friend. We hate this idea of estrangement because it's something in us, in ourselves, we don't like. And I want to pick up this in Ephesians. The Bible also is a very key point. We understand that once we were estranged from God. So the Berlin Wall is just a very, very simple idea that explains exactly the situation we were in. At one time, we were God's enemies, if you like. We were on one side and God was on the other. In God's mind... In God's mind, it was always about bringing us into relationship with himself. Okay? So this, is, this comes through in Ephesians, which is what I want to get through to you as well. But we have hope. And I want to duck over quickly to Romans 8.38, which you'll know very well. Okay? Because Paul, Paul's, Paul doesn't teach two, two gospels here. He's teaching one gospel. For I am sure that neither life nor death, or death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. That's, that's our Lord's promise to us when we know him. So let's go to the next slide. The Amplified tells us a little bit more. So I'm just using the Amplified to give you a little bit more weight on this. For I am persuaded beyond doubt. Are we persuaded this morning beyond doubt? Are we sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things, and this things means literally things right in front of you, not even the closest thing to you, the natural, if you like, impending or threatening, so not ideas or things that are real, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a very powerful thing for us to understand. God loves us so much, and, and it's his plan for us to live with him forever in perfect love. He desires that none should perish, but all should have eternal life. John 3.16. Okay, this is God's heart. But we had estrangement, didn't we? How is that going to happen when we're rebellious, when we're sinful, or when we don't even love God? He loves us, we don't love... It's like an unrequited love, you know? He loves us, but we don't really love him. So how are we going to bridge that gap well, this, this is where Ephesians picks up. God has a plan which Paul outlines in Ephesians. It's God's plan to bring all people who believe in Jesus 
into the unity in God. Okay? For God wants us to be uh, receive an inheritance. Receive an inheritance. So Ephesians talks about this idea of inheritance. So let's go to Ephesians and let's, get, let's kick on with that. Blessed be the God, oh, we got the script, there we, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things under him in heaven and things on earth. The good news today is that Jesus loves us. And if we put our faith in him, we are made right with God. That divide, that estrangement can be gone. And it can be gone only through the person of Jesus. God has given us Christ and calls us to faith. Calls us to faith. God has united us to himself. We become his children. We have this remarkable inheritance. What We get what we don't deserve. That's grace. Do you understand the principle of that? That's the only difference between, I think, being a Christian and maybe other world religions in some way, the way they understand things. Because they understand things like perhaps the idea, rudimentary ideas say of love, or they might even understand rudimentary things of morals and things like that. But really, our love is based upon a definition of that. And that definition is, in Christ, we got something which we didn't deserve in a good way. We didn't deserve his forgiveness, yet he, he lavished it on us through the person of Christ. Because we, we, you deserve punishment if you've done something wrong. Each of us would be crying out if someone stole something from us or, or, or we were nasty to us in some way. Each of us would demand justice. Little children I know from very young, he took my toy. She won't talk to me. You know, we know this as human beings, right? God understands justice, but he's prepared to forgo that. Well, justice is in Christ, so not forgo it, but Jesus has fulfilled that. But he's prepared to send his own son so that that might be, his wrath is averted. We call that propitiation. Hard word. Don't ask me to spell it right now. Okay? It's averted wrath. Okay? It should be upon us and it's on Christ. He's taken it for us. We have salvation because Jesus has done it. So in verse 10, he set forth Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things. Unite all things. How important is unity? Things in heaven and things on earth. It has always been God's plan to have us in relationship with himself and ultimately a perfect relationship. Okay? So let's duck across to chapter 2. Wherever there's good news, there has to be bad news. So we hear the good news. What was the bad news? Well, the bad news was found here. And we go to chapter 2. Paul starts with the good news as such, but he tells us the bad news and the good news. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, or body, whatever you want to describe, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, here's the good news, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
that is probably our most famous scripture, by grace you've been saved in some ways, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, again, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Say that again, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And here's where Paul picks up in chapters 4, four to 6. He says, this is how you kind of walk. These are the things that will be fruitfulness, if you like. But it all starts from the basis of faith first. Okay, made new in Christ, outpouring. In, out, in, out. Love in, love out. God loves us in, give out love. It's not that easy. Okay, Paul, that's why he's writing Ephesians. <laughs> it's not that easy. Okay, so God created the world. We know he created Adam and Eve. This idyllic relationship where they could walk about the garden in perfection. That was his plan. One rule, <laughs> literally one rule. And you know, with children, you've had children, of your, oh, you probably most of you had children of your own. You know, one rule could be really difficult for a little kid. They actually don't follow that one rule a lot of the time. Don't touch that. Pack up your room. I just want you to clean your room. Anyone got a teenager, just clean your room. I just want one thing, just clean the room. Or well, it's the same in the garden without making light of it. You know, just that one rule. But it was about authority, it was about God's rule and his blessing. Yeah, our staff have been looking at God's big picture, right? God's people in God's place, enjoying his blessings and his authority. That's God's ultimate plan. That was the garden. We enjoyed that. It was idyllic. And then it was catastrophic. We don't understand how catastrophic. Things are the way they are because of this rebellion. That's the bad news Paul's talking about. This is what happened. And estrangement, we come back to the idea we were estranged. We literally had angels at the, at the entry and exit, if you like. That was it. It was a separation. But God, thankfully, didn't leave us in that state. We had this no man's land that we couldn't bridge ourselves. We couldn't get across that no man's land. We couldn't get there by ourselves. There's only one way that that can be bridged, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. Right? He is the bridge across that no man's land. He is the one who knocks down the wall. Now, Paul picks up on two things. He talks about humanity. I've just talked about humanity. He then talks about Jews and Gentiles. One of the things he's severe on is if you try to make two parties, you have a real problem with me. I will not allow it in a church, any church that we've basically set up. I will not allow division based upon those theological lines, I guess you would say. This is the truth of the gospel. Jesus is uniting everyone in the gospel. If a person is a Christian, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. In our salvation, we are all equal. So you cannot divide into camps. We can't say Jews worship here, Gentiles worship here. And we do it culturally ourselves at times as well. So anything which is even a smell of that is something, I believe that Paul writing an epistle today write the same thing. Say, don't even think about a click. Don't even think about being proud. Because I think those themes are coming through all the letters as well. And I think we know that deep down. I think the Holy Spirit says that to us. We should actually be looking at this that we can't have these sort of separations so god united humanity through christ but he also broke down what he called the dividing wall of hostility which you read in chapter two which was a literal place you remember when jesus got angry in the temple why was he angry well they were using it a house of trade rather than prayer right they were just trading 
they needed to sort of trade because they needed sort of money to pay their temple tax and stuff. So they they sort of do these sort of almost like uh, currency exchanges. But they chose to do that a lot of the time in that area. That was sort of accepted. Then they started selling doves, pigeons for the atonement and so forth. Jesus didn't like it because that particular area was the only place that the Gentiles could come. It was called the Gentiles' court. Then there was a lower wall in there as you went into the temple. So we're talking about rebuilding the temple with Herod the Great. And if you went beyond that wall, there were signs. They've still got them today. You can read like blocks. And it said, if you go beyond this point, you're basically going to be killed. Any Gentile goes beyond this wall, he's dead. (laughs) So, gee, that'd be interesting around the place, wouldn't it? Anyone who parks in this position, you're dead. That's literally what it's saying. They were that serious about it. And Jesus was angry because... Basically, there was all this sort of trading happened. So if the Gentiles wanted to, you know, get a, to know God at all or come to, come to Jerusalem and come to the temple, they had no, you know, it was basically a marketplace, not a house of prayer. So there were all these kind of things in the background we wouldn't understand. But the people, Ephesians knew very well, particularly the Jews, knew what Paul was talking about. There was a literal wall in the temple where it separated Gentiles and Jews. He's saying that wall is destroyed. It's gone. I've got rid of it. I've destroyed that wall. We are united in Christ. Okay? And that should be good news. Should be good news because this is going to all nations. Okay? Going to all nations. And it also fulfills the covenant with Abraham of make you a father of all nations, literally. It's coming back to that, which Paul picks up as well. So there should be no division in the Christian church as such when it comes to who's higher or who's lower or who does what or what. You know, I've been a Christian 55 years in my family for five generations. It's just not, it's not relevant for the church. What's relevant is that we are children of God, each of us. Okay? So the gospel is really the good news in place of the bad news. The bad news is we're lost without Christ. The good news is that we are saved. And it could even add, good news could be extended, say great news. Not, it's good news, but you can say it's great news. Great news, you don't have to struggle to actually save yourself. You don't have to go for a karma, a spiritual karma, as it were. You know, or this idea of scales. You know, if I do more good, I sort of go up. And if I do bad, I go down. That's grace. That's not about what you do. It's about what he did. Okay? It's not about what you did. It's what he did. Okay? I know doing good is a good thing, but it won't get you to heaven as such in itself. Only Jesus Christ is that assurance. And Paul wants us to know that. In fact, that's why in chains he can say that, that he is just so astounded at God's mercy and love for him. Even though his earthly life basically is not that great at that point, he knows that he can still preach the gospel where he is. And look how effective he's been. The fact that, what, 2,000 years later, here we are. So he, I, I think he had, had a sense what the Holy Spirit was trying to do. Okay, let's jump to chapter 3. And this is what I'm going to sort of wrap up around here. So I'm going to bring it back now. So you know, we were estranged from God. Jesus brought us back into a relationship with him. He got rid of all the barriers that would hold us back. Once we have our faith in Jesus, we are connected. We are sons, if you like, and daughters, and we have this inheritance. He says that the Holy Spirit is like a down payment. When you receive the Holy Spirit, it's sort of waiting for that you know, eternity at the end, I guess you'd say, when God sort of wraps everything up and we're, we're basically called up into the air. However you want to think of eschatology, I suppose, at that point. But we're one in Christ and we, need to, we know that we're saved. So he says, for this reason... Got that one there. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, I couldn't even work out the directions, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Yeah. Isn't that good? That's his conclusion of doctrine. You can know all this in here, but this is the actual reality. We have to actually give praise to God for what he's done for us. He's actually saved us and he hasn't finished with us. Right? So God always keeps, keeps revealing himself that we understand the love of God. You, know, you can't measure it. He's being sort of saying, he's got so many dimensions. Every dimension you can measure, you can't measure. It's not enough to measure the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now I want to bring us back, if I may, just as I come to the end, about what Pastor Wayne has been challenging us, I guess, over the last few weeks. And I think these are really good things. As in, I think it's, it's always good to be reminded of preeminence of things. Okay? Do you understand that idea? What's the most important thing? And we went to 1 Corinthians 13 and said, well, without love, I'm a resounding symbol. I make no impact. And, and, it's, and it's actually between all the gift sort of passages in 13. So there's a lot of giftings, but at, in the middle, right in the sandwich, the meat in the sandwich is love. Okay, and it's not sort of, it's not the love that the world imagines. It's agape love. Okay, it's selfless, selfless love. It's the love of God, the ultimate love. And if we can do those two things, love God and love others, we are on the right track. That's a little bit difficult for us in that stuff happens. Attitudes happen. And it it is basically a human condition that we need to love. So we've got like this emptiness that happens in us all the time. We seem to let it leak out and we forget, you know, what got the goodness of God in our lives. And we're just human we blow a stack or we, we, we're just callous in some way. And we, know, we all know we got it there. And the prayer this morning is we've got anything, anything that's holding us back. If there's that rock in our backpack, as Wayne described it, it's time to get rid of it. Okay, it's time to get rid of it. And could I encourage people, just like Paul sent from Miletus, he sent them to come over to him. Okay, sometimes you need that help. You need that, that, that encouragement. I'll be bold in saying there are people here that can help with that that would be eager to help and pray through. You don't need to make it a big deal for yourself, but there will be people just to come alongside and ask to pray that God might literally take it off you, literally physically take it off you, as it were. If it's, if it's not because it's bringing just you down, but it will actually be, affect your relationships with others as well and ultimately your relationship with God as well. That's, as Wayne said also, that's for me as much as it's for you because I know I do these things and if I feel that way, I'm pretty sure you would feel that way at times as well. It's not that easy to do. Okay, so we need to be rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is this whole dimension of love that Christ has for us that surpasses our actual head knowledge, if you like, and to be filled with all the fullness of God. This made Paul bow his knee when he considered the magnitude of what God had done and it bows our knee as well. He was drawn to thanksgiving and you notice in there right at the beginning, can I encourage you to read it, there's this theme that he comes back to, thankfulness, 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 thankfulness. You can't be thankful enough for what God has done. Okay? So, maybe I could just, uh, if I could have, uh, would it be possible to have maybe, uh, yeah, Tris and the, and the team come up, Janice? We, we sang that last one as well. If we get that last song we sang as well. Uh, just a time just to sing this to God as we conclude. I'm going to pray, but I'm kind of feeling that this morning as we, as we go, it would be, 
it'd be right and proper as we sing the last song, if you feel that you just need prayer to know the love of God in any way, whether you don't know the Lord, you haven't actually, if this is new and you've never heard the gospel before and you want to meet this Jesus, today is the day that the Lord has made. Yep, he's available. He, he, he wants to reconcile. He wants to bring this estrangement. You know, we were separate. He wants to bring us back. But if there's also, you want something, a prayer in relation to, you know, how do I love more, God? Or, or you know, there's, there's an impediment there. Please don't be shy, as in don't be embarrassed or, or worried about it. Just come forward for prayer while we're praying. And that's what we'll be here for at the front. So I'd like to take some time at the end to be here for people that want prayer. If we just sing this song, and once the song's uh, over, we will we'll finish up. I'm just going to pray as the, before the... Um, before the music team just bring forward the song. I just want to thank you, Lord. I want to thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord. Can you help us to understand this idea of grace, Lord? Lord, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not because of the good things we'd done, but, Lord, because of the separation that was between us, that we had this bridge or this area that we needed to, to actually traverse, Lord, that we couldn't get through ourselves. We were in no man's land, Lord. We were literally dead in our sins. And yet through your great love and mercy, you sent Jesus. And Lord, we proclaim the name of Jesus. We lift him up. We honor and praise Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we ask you, Lord, that you work in every heart and mind and soul here, Lord, to know the fullness of the love of God. What is the breadth and the depth and the width and the surpassing love of God that he lavished on us? We thank you, Lord. So we just sing this, Lord, as we... As we just lift up our voices. We just want to, for you to accept all the praise and honor this morning. In the name of Jesus.